Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over, one of our bonus episodes. Oh, wait a minute. You, you didn't... We're supposed to do, like, oh, uh, something horrible happened in the news today. But something good happened in the news, too. And then something important happened in the news. And then something trivial. <laughs> and we were there. <laughs> but wait, this is not this is not one of those episodes. This is a special bonus episode. Oh, I, I just woke up. You didn't tell me. What are we doing? We're going to read the mailbag today. We're going to empty the whole damn thing. Okay, fair enough. I'm... <clears throat> Just kidding. I didn't just wake up. <laughs> so, yeah, to those who are uh, unsure of what this bonus episode is, that doesn't make any sense because you're only hearing it because you're a subscriber to our Patreon. And therefore, you already know that we have uh, sent out a message that if you wanted to ha- ask us a question about the show or the decade or movies or geek stuff in general, that uh, you can. We got what? About a dozen, a couple more. And, uh, and Drew organized them. And now we're going to run through them and answer these questions. And it's going to be so scintillating, you're going to double your, your Patreon po- uh, uh, donation. I, I heard it was actually pronounced Putriump. Hey, look, There's a lot of silent letters in there. I understand that I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but <laughs> I, will always, it's, I will always think it's patron. That's yes, what I, you know. Patron. Pa- Patreon. Patreon. Oh, God. <laughs> It's what happens when these companies come along and make up new words. I understand. I'm not trying to disrespect the company. I just, when I see the word, my brain says a certain thing. Right. And it's something something different every time. There you go. So I am joined by my co-host, Drew McWeeny. Drew, who are you joined by? Uh, I've heard my co-host is here, Scott Weinberg. That's me. And we're here to, as if we haven't already explained it, ace and cues. (laughs) We're going to A the hell out of them. Um, Dude, we're going to get all up in those A's. So let's start with uh, this first one is from Celtic Ray Filmworks. And it says, have you guys hit a film yet that is so soul crushingly terrible that the thought of revisiting it turns your brain into jello pudding? Uh, yeah. And we're, we took this question as what have you covered so far that was painful and miserable? Yeah. Uh, and, and I didn't run through the I, off the top of my head. I thought of a few things. The first thing was John Derrick. The second thing was Beatlemania. John Derrick Derrick and Beatlemania. uh, For those who uh, may have forgotten so far of John Derrick's work, we've covered uh, uh, Fantasies and uh, Tarzan the Ape Man. And we will soon get to even worse films. And I I dread those. hesitation there before work. John Derrick and his um, work. (laughs) Thank you for reviewing my comedy. Drew... What I, uh, I have, I have a couple others, but what, what are some of your answers? Well, I got to admit, when we were getting ready to do the Incredible Shrinking Woman, I was dreading it. And I'll say this: it's not as murderously awful as I remembered. It's just not good. Uh, but, now you just, now you're just laying down for that Incredible Shrinking Woman fan base who just taunt you on Twitter mercilessly. They're like Galaxy Glue, Galaxy, and you just now you're giving in. I, I, I uh, oh, but the one that was worse than I remembered, and I. I thought it was going to be bad going in. It was almost too much for me to make it through. It was the Gong Show movie. Yeah. That, that is an anti-film. It is barely, by any legal definition, a movie. Yeah, the show, uh, if you were to tell me that the series is a, uh, to borrow a phrase I don't enjoy, I don't appreciate, a guilty pleasure of the Gong Show, and you say you like that show, you know it's dumb, but you like the show, that I could see because it's a comedy show, and it's a talent show, and it's a combination of the two. The movie, ugh. <laughs> it just feels like 
oh, this is hot for a month. Let's make a movie about it. And it just it's garbage. I agree. What else you got? Bizarre. Bizarre. Um, Well, one of the things that I've noticed is that watching watching these films as we're going through this, it's it is fascinating to me because of how much nostalgia I have for things. And it's pretty easy, it turns out, to destroy any memory you have of a movie by rewatching it 30 years later. And so it's interesting what is holding up, what isn't, what is worse than I remembered, um, you know, what is almost unwatchable. There is a lot of terrible comedy in the early 80s. And one of the things that I've noticed is there's the, the stuff that punches through the actual good comedy. It's pretty rare at this point. Even the SNL stuff. It's, this is a long windup for you to say neighbors, isn't it? <laughs> uh, that'll be that'll be the answer to the next question, but that's coming. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's it to me it is it's shocking when we go back and we look at these things and you realize that yeah there are there are certainly movies that after this I will never ever watch again. And I think Heartbeeps and Neighbors are now officially on that list. Oh yeah, and there's something something darkly special about a film that you remember disliking. And then you see it and you like it even less. That, that's, that's hard. That, yeah. yeah, that's not common. Yeah, generally, you you know, you could be as an adult, maybe a bit more forgiving of bad films or and then there's just stuff where you're like, well, this is bad on a grown up level. This is not just <laughs> heartbeats. Good Lord. Uh, yeah. I also jotted down the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu just because it's such an egregious waste of legitimate talent. And, and in a similar vein, first family. Uh, which kind of touches on what you said, just just comedies that were like glorified SNL skits stretched out. And, you know, that still happens today, obviously. But uh, some of these semi forgotten comedies that we've covered are just painful to behold. What else you got? Uh, well, that's it for the ones that we've already covered. OK, uh, I do next... have, I oh, do go have ahead. one quick underheading, uh, quick heading uh, with all due apologies to Caddyshack and seems like old times two good Chevy Chase films. In these two years that we've covered, he's also done Oh Heavenly Dog, Under the Rainbow, and Modern Problems. Um, so those, you know, that that's how Feast Your Famine Chevy Chase was because uh, I, we love Caddyshack and I believe we've expounded our affections pro, profusely for Seems Like Old Times. Uh, oh, but, but Chevy Chase was uh, not just hit or miss, he was hit or crater. Well, and... I, it goes to the fact that I and I I believe this firmly. I don't think Chevy knows the difference between a good script and a bad script. I really don't. I think there are some people when they read it, they just look to see their part and they're like, yeah, I can do something with that. I can do something with that. Fine. But there are so many movies in Chevy's career where I don't understand how you could read it on the page and think that's a film and I'm going to be great in it. Yeah, but I mean, it's also a guy who was who was celebrated from SNL. He he did a, a very gr- popular farce with the National Lampoon guys. Then he did a S- Neil Simon comedy with Goldie Hawn and Charles Grodin. And so, like, there's to to to, no, no, to do modern problems just disappointing. Let's just well, but but foul play. Like I, what oh, was yeah. fascinating was because he was and here's there's a there's a real thing that goes on with these SNL guys like. Obviously, SNL has become one of the greatest talent pools of all time for film to poach from. And there's a lot of guys who make the jump and there's star vehicles that will built for them. And you get stuff like Beverly Hills Ninja because nobody knows what to do with Chris Farley. But with Chevy Chase, what made him so special in the 70s was the notion that he was a really good looking, possibly even movie star good looking guy who also happened to have that weird subversive thing going on. And that's what I think Hollywood was trying to figure out what to do with him. That's why foul play kind of worked was he got to play what would traditionally just be the cop movie. Yeah, lead but and Drew, subvert it. 
every every year that's a really good point and i agree with you but everything you just said about chevy chase could also be just said about steve martin and while steve martin certainly started in a, ha- a handful of missteps i mean steve martin never did a modern problems you know what the difference Do- is what Steve Martin wrote his material. Steve Martin actually yeah. wrote films. I thought you were going to say Steve Martin is deeply intelligent. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, but there's a huge difference. Chevy's not a creator, and it's one of the things yeah, that that's if true. you really that's take point. a step back and look, he's never written a film. He's never directed. He's never created something. He plays a part. And as an actor, that's fine. You don't have to also write and direct. But it's one of the reasons that like, when you look at – even but, Adam but I mean, Sandler's even, career, for even, God's sake, he's got a signature to his films that are his films, and Chevy's are just – he's at the whim of whatever filmmaker he's working with. Right, but even when Steve Martin wasn't involved in the writing process, he just had a much better eye for material, I think. Oh, it's true. It's true, uh, but I think that comes from being a writer is he knows yeah, that it has true. to start on the page. Yeah, good point. Uh, our next question comes from Heath Chemerski, and he says, hey, guys, I have a similar question. Is there a film still to come later in the 80s that you're absolutely dreading having to revisit for the show? Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> now, see, I worked at a theater for a good chunk of the 80s. So there's stuff that I would walk in and out of and see that played there for, you know, six days because it just was a, a, a run that they had to burn off for contractual yeah, reasons. I, I just to me, I'm dreading stuff that like like mindless like how the fact that they made sequels to like mannequin and weekend at bernie's like stuff like that i'm really dreading um uh i I caligula just because it's just just so overwhelmingly um it's everything except desperately seeking susan that starred madonna if it's yes. that girl or shanghai surprise oh or, no shit those are oh. terrible movies yeah, the, those are coming, the, uh, Scott. You're gonna yeah. have to watch them again. They're the bottom, the bottom of the barrel slasher movies. I like a lot of the almost bottom. I like some of those, but the bottom of the barrel, like the, the, the no creative juice at all, just you know, generic copycats. I'm not a big fan of those. Some are decent. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of dreading the Police Academy se- sequels again. I. Almost anything that's got the De Laurentiis group logo on the front of it is going to be a tough go. There's yeah, two of those. and There's one in particular that I am. I, I, I guess? have not seen it since it was in the theater. And oh, I'm going to guess. Crying, laughing at how horrible is it, it is. Oh, oh, my God. Is it a Bob Clark film? No. Damn. It is a, it is a sequel. I thought it was uh, from the hit. <laughs> You know, from the hip, we will talk about when we get there with uh, Mr. Nelson. But yeah. no, I am I am really dreading King Kong Lives. Oh, God. Which, if I'm not mistaken, and it's been a long time since I've seen it. If I'm not mistaken, it ends with Kong Bitch or whatever her name is actually laying in a barn giving birth to baby Kong in what is I can only describe this, as the world's weirdest giant ape version of the nativity scene. It is. The, this is the movie in which a giant ape gets a, an, an artificial heart. <laughs> and they built, so you know, like there's like this prop that's like the size of a Mack truck. And during the entire production and, and, and inception of this film, nobody went, God, is this a stupid idea? Wow. Um, I'm also yeah, dreading life and he has a love affair and then has yeah. a baby. It's something I, else. I'm also and I know you and I've talked about this a little. I am also dreading uh, for social reasons, uh, although kind of interested, but I'm mostly dreading revisiting most of the teen sex comedies. Because yeah. at including Revenge of the Nerds, oh, which man, has it's... become sort of the flagship for 
what was, you know, playfully naughty in 1984, how did that become rank and unacceptable in 2017? And and the importance of like judging a film for the era in which it was made, you can't judge a movie based on our modern standards. On the other hand, you're not required to sit and appreciate it either. Um, so uh, I'm not looking forward to some of those. And, and Revenge of the Nerds has some ugly stuff, but uh, I mean, there's some low-end teen sex comedies that are just not just playful, horny boys. There's some like hard bodies. They're like ugly movies. There's uh, um, there's one film that played the theater where I worked, and I saw a total of 12 minutes of it. And 12 minutes in, I got up, I walked out, and I was like, I'm not even going to go in there and oh, clean oh, that I, fucking theater. There's, I'm guess? never seeing any more of this. I'm going to guess. All right. It's from the hip. It's <laughs> You're really hung up on from the hip. It is not from the hip. It is... And man, I even hate saying the title. I have this on DVD, and I don't know how. I don't know when I bought it. But as I was going through and pulling 80s stuff, I realized I actually own this thing. So I have no excuse. I am going to watch when we get there. Oh, the suspense is killing me. The Garbage Pale Kids movie. Oh, God. Released by Paramount Pictures. That's a real thing. And we're going to have to see it. And uh, do you have anything else you're dreading? Because I have the closer. No, I think those are the big ones. I really, I get nervous when I think about the Garbage Pail Kids movie. Yeah. Uh, Bolero and Ghost Can't Do It. Terrible, 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 terrible. Yes. Uh, and also, I think that we should change the name of the podcast to Fuck You, John Derrick. <laughs> um, I if, you would, if you had told me before we started this podcast, like who would be the most vilified filmmaker, like for the first two years, never would have guessed John there. <laughs> but it's, I think it's well deserved. Oh, yeah. Uh, well earned. Well earned. Move on. Move on. What do we got? <laughs> All right. So next up, what is uh, Jeffrey Patrick writes? What is your note taking process like for deciding what you want to say for each movie? And what things do you look for in particular? Ah, well. As, as most people could probably tell, I'm a huge, and Drew is as well, but uh, I'm a huge character actor junkie. So when I watch something like Reds, I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like just jotting names down. And I could just as easily check IMDb. But to me, it's just more fun to be like, Charles Durning. Oh my God, Ken McMillan. Oh my God, Carol Kane. You know, that's just, to me, I love that. That to me, like, is almost a game in a movie. Um, so uh, I... I um, I, I jot those down and then like um, uh, I'll have like then and now a lot of times I'll just do the whole I'll write all the titles down for the whole month and I'll kind of do a then and now note and then uh, just a sentence or two of what I thought about the movie back then vague memories or you know thoughts and uh, and then I just I'll just write notes as if I'm reviewing a film just uh, you know uh, this is a steel this is a fantastic performance or it's really well shot or this consistently funny you know like just just Typical nerdy film geek notes, just anything that you'd want to put in a review. Uh, and and then I generally, yeah, because I find that if you write stuff out, it, it kind of feels red. And I, Drew and I wanted to make it from the beginning that we were not going to be listening to like lectures or, or old reviews. You were going to be listening to conversation. Right. So, um, yeah. So, you know, for me, it's just phrasing and stuff. And then I, as Drew and I are chatting, I go, did I... Uh, Oh, oh, I never mentioned the cinematography in Old Golden Pond. You know, let me throw that in. Um, but that's about it. Drew, what do you do? Um, I will. It's interesting because I don't um, I, I don't take the same kinds of notes for everything. I, I just kind of with each film as I start watching, 
like sometimes it'll be really easy. The thing that you want to hang kind of your comments on pops out, like whether it's an actor or director or some combination thereof, like these guys work together a lot. Um, but so it's easy to at least start the conversation. But then after I watch the films, I end up reading about them and I take notes based on stuff that I read about the making of them. And in the end, then I try and just put everything back onto one document that I have in front of me so that I'm not referring to anything during the show, but a single screen. And, you know, I've had films where I took like four notes total and I had one one or two films where I've had like almost four pages of notes. It really depends on the movie and its history and how much it feels like there is to say about oh, it. Also, and how much, how well we know it. And I ain't yeah. going to lie when, you know, when we did 81 and I'm looking at this list and the bottom one was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Swear to God, it was just a big blank. I didn't, you know, like when you've seen something six, seven times, except for like key stuff that you want to be sure to mention. Yep. You don't need like you don't need notes, you know, um, so, you know, I, I would say that I have like three or four lines for each movie. And like Drew, I uh, not during the movie, but afterwards, if it's a film I'm particularly interested in or is, is interesting, uh, I will do some reading. I, I you know, we also said we don't want to just regurgitate IMDb trivia or other articles or Wikipedia, you know, uh, you, although we use all those things as sources, you know, the key is that it. You know, it's it's original content. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just fun research. It's a lot of work, but it's well, fun work. And that, that's the thing is, I, f I find that as I get older, one of my favorite things is research heavy projects. Uh, you know, there's a, a book thing that I'm working on now that is just notes, and I'll probably be taking notes for another year and a half. Before. Fine, Drew. Let's plug your book. Let's stop the Q and A to plug the book. Uh, I did write a book, and it's called "I Hate You, Old Man: Film Nerd 2.0 versus Friday I, the 13th. I am the I am the old man in the "I Hate You, Old Man." It, it's me, <laughs> Scott Weinberg. I'm sorry. I, I was being there's comedy, and then there's rude. I interrupted you, so say the title again, please. Uh, I hate you, old man. Uh, Film nerd 2.0 versus Friday the 13th. And yeah, half the book is an essay about my kids and their journey through horror films and how it took them a while to get there because I kind of screwed up and showed them something too scary early. And then the second half of the book is a list of movies you can share with your kids and some films that you might want to hold off until they've got the foundations in place. Um, Drew, I have some Q and A's to the author of a man, uh, the author of books that focus on cinema and parenting. Yes. What would you do if you found out that you raised absolute wimps who couldn't watch horror at all? Uh, you know, you steer into you you steer into what they're into, and I, as much as I love horror, I accept that. Throughout my life, the people that love horror as much as me are not all of my friends and not all of my peers. That horror is more of an acquired taste. And I think it's because it is challenging and I think it pushes you. And, you know, I think especially with kids, you just you want to be careful that you're showing them stuff. I, I try to stay away from sexually explicit horror where it's like body horror or it's tied up in very adult ideas because I just don't think they have the, the reference points to even get it. So it's probably a not scary and b not appropriate. But there's so much out there that is appropriate that you can show them. And some of that has some gore in it. I don't think gore is a problem for kids so much as um, context and what the gore is about. Like the Friday the 13th movies going back and watching them. I'm surprised how tame they feel by today's standards. Uh, I would like to know when you're going to let your boys watch Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Well, it'll be after Hellraiser 1, which will probably be when they're 30. Uh, oh, his answer is chronologically. Yes, chronologically. And they'll have to be about 30 before they see the first uh, no, no, one. But, but my, uh, one, uh, a sincere, another serious question. Um, what do you say to parents who say, well, I don't think horror 
films, even relatively tame ones, are good for kids under 10 or 12. I, I don't see what's good about children being scared. Uh, I don't see why that's, a, you know, why that's something apparent. Because uh, obviously, I'm not judging you. If I had, if I had sure. kids, I'd introduce them to horror films, but I would also be careful to introduce them to appropriate ones. Yeah. Uh, but what do you say to people who say that it's just not appropriate at all? Well, A, I'd ask you if you're raising children or if you're raising veal, because uh, children are going to encounter things in the real world that are scary and frightening and difficult. And that's one of the reasons that we watch horror films is to let us have those experiences in the dark in a controlled way so that we can understand our own reactions to them and what scares us and what defines us. And I think that if you don't ever want to tangle with horror films, that's fine. But if you are willing to do it, I think they're incredibly therapeutic and valuable. And I think that there are things that happen in horror movies that allow you a release, an emotional release that you get from very few other things. And, you know, like I, I believe Ebert said this about the idea that there are involuntary reactions we have when we watch movies and being scared is one of those involuntary things. Laughing is one of those involuntary things. You know, a hard on is one of those involuntary things. Films do all these things to us and, it's about what part of that experience you want. I think it's fine to be thrilled and scared and challenged, but yeah. I love the safety of doing it with movies. My grandmother used to, like, as as our regular listeners know, used to watch horror movies with me on HBO and record them for me. And I remember very clearly, and my mom was totally fine with it. She, she you know, she knew I was a, horror, a film nut, and that was my hobby, so she didn't... Uh, make a big deal about me watching, you know, 10, tw 10, 12, 14 years old didn't make a big deal about me watching Friday the 13th and Halloweens and whatnot. And I remember my grandmother saying to her, so he'll be scared. So what? He'll get over it. Yeah. You know, like you know, if he sees Friday the 13th, he might have a cre He might lie in bed and be creeped out for a few hours. Who cares? He'll get over it. It's not, yep. it's not, it's not going to hurt him. So. Uh, and I've noticed a huge shift just in my kids' attitude since they started watching. Like it, they are looser now with stuff where just today we watched the Robert Zemeckis uh, Tales from the Crypt episode all through the house and they screamed all the way through it and then laughed their butts off and right, we'll that's such back. a great we'll, feeling yeah we'll get back to the Q&A but I, I think it's interesting because I I, I can't uh, I, when I was a kid and I got done a, a particularly creepy or gory or scary horror movie you, you almost have like a spring in your step like you yep. accomplish something you beat that movie or oh, you yeah. know it, it is a small accomplishment so all right, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, our friend on Twitter, Jesse Shade, says, if they had done the Marvel Universe in the 80s, which actors would have been cast as the Avengers? Okay, I love this question. We could do an entire hour on just this. <laughs> I, 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 I posed the question to my own Twitter followers a few hours ago and got some astonishingly good answers. Uh, off the top of my head, and don't judge me, comic nuts, because I'm not a comics expert. I like them, but I don't know much about them. Kurt Russell as Tony Stark. Yeah? I think that's not a bad choice. I. It's funny, because I could also see him, because of that blue-collar thing, I could also see him... All right, uh, all right, let's do it this way. You you will, like, you rattle off the name, the character, and you and I will each go A, B, who we think should play. So who did you have for Tony Stark? Uh, I didn't yet, and I what what I found interesting was the the fact that this is you're talking about these guys in the the prime of their career, like in the '80s, right? So you're talking about who was huge at that point. It's a really different talent pool. Like I don't know who Tony Stark would have been back then. I do. I some of the ones. Cam that I, how about Bruce Campbell? 
it's it, if they had taken a chance with him, I could see that. Timothy yeah. Dalton, I know, is a a great choice who looks a lot like the classic Tony Stark out of the uh, the comics. And um, oh, I got it, Tony Stark, and we're moving on. Ready, Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> Why do you no. laugh? No, he's Thor. Uh, Dolph Lundgren. Uh, okay, well, that's it. Well, see, for Thor, now you get into the weird thing in the 80s. If you had an accent, you know who gets offered every accent role first. Arnold. And they would say, well, it's German, but that's sort of near where Thor came from, right? You know uh, that they would tie themselves in knots to try and say right, that. Who, who, do you, who, do you, who would you have for Captain America? Captain America in the 80s, who is uh, the most American person that you can I, I put Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid's a terrific choice for Captain America. Yeah. The know, 80s Dennis Quaid. Yeah, that would be pretty great. I mean, I am pretty awesome. Like, let's talk about that for five minutes. We, <laughs> we, we plugged your book. I don't have a book. Can we plug my movie? Sure. <laughs> no, we're not going to plug my stupid <laughs> movie. Uh, maybe when we have a release date. Wink, wink. Um, who do you have for Black Widow? See, Black Widow at that point, in that particular time, I would probably go with Ellen Barkin. Oh, she's great. Sigourney Weaver, I have. Sigourney Weaver would be great, too. I, but, I certainly but think. She, I don't, something about it is just doesn't play right because, no disrespect to Scarlett Johansson, but she's a secondary character, and I don't see Sigourney Weaver. No. Not, that she, not that she wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't buy it. She is a leader. She is not a secondary character. Yeah. Um, all right, who else we got? Hawkeye, Bill Paxton, late great. Bill, Bill Ooh, Paxton. that'd be great. Yep. That'd be terrific. You'd make suddenly Hawkeye would be everybody's favorite character, though. Uh, Loki, I made a slightly controversial pick, and I said Eddie Murphy. You know, here's what I like about that choice. A, it's like the Heimdall choice in the films they actually made, which is just who gives a shit? We're going to do what we want and cast who we want. And B, the that is the perfect personality for it like i think mm -hmm. eddie would be hilarious as loki and watching him taunt whoever his brother was and clearly dad has a secret because look at thor and look at eddie side by side so yeah yeah and eddie being like the um the the refined version of eddie which he's done m very many times not the not not a wacky eddie that, that right. to me would be a fun look but still the wit would be hilarious and mm -hmm. i think that would be a really interesting fit i've got um as bruce banner jeff goldblum yeah <laughs> yeah he's lankier than i typically think of but yeah. um but yeah and then uh, obviously since there's no cg that's where you cast arnold is it as as the hulk when he turns into him so then he doesn't speak and it's great um what who are we forgetting uh we haven't done um black panther uh denzel young denzel Oh, God, without, I mean, yeah. a lot of good, a lot of actors could have done it, but I mean, this is the, yeah, you would have gotten him at the right, you would have gotten him at the right age too. He would have been imagine really... how, you know, in mid twenties as a superhero, he would have been great. Um, or thirties, early thirties. So now who's uh, your captain America it was Dennis Quaid. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm saving my agent Coulson for the end, but I was going to say, who's Bucky then Bucky is Bruce Willis. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'd watch him come back and try and kill, uh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you know, people are thinking because Bruce Willis obviously is still a big movie star. They're thinking of contemporary. No, think of like 1988 Bruce Willis. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. And then the so, Vision. Who are you gonna paint and stick in that costume? Crispin Glover. Ooh. Okay. I'm down for that. I'd watch yeah. that. I think if you couldn't get him, somebody like Bowie, who feels like he's from oh, another planet. Oh yeah, Bowie. Bowie would have been a really interesting Vision. Absolutely. Oh, um, and uh, Scarlet Witch, Angelica Houston. 
Ooh, I like that. She might be a slightly older than the character, but whatever. Somebody somebody threw her name out on Twitter, and I went, oh, that's Scarlet Witch. Yeah. Um, who are we forgetting? There's so many. So uh, many. I think we got them. Oh, Ant-Man. Ant-Man. Oh, I had that. Um, well, the funny answer is you just cast Michael Douglas in the 80s. Oh, uh, Michael J. Fox as Spider-Man. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, Ant-Man would have to be somebody funny. Um, I forget who I said on Twitter, but we had a good one for Ant-Man. Um, and and all right, I'll, I'll break out my final. Ready? Agent Coulson. I'll give you one guess. Agent Coulson. Tom Hanks. Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman. <laughs> Imagine him as Coulson. That's, That's so a first-rate answer. Uh, thank you, Jesse. That was a fun. Do you have anything else you want to contribute to this? That's a good one. I like that one a lot. Uh, um, if, I would love this... to see everybody else's list, though. If you guys are listening and you do this, I, I want your list of who the Avengers would be. And for God's sake, if somebody wants to do poster art, please do. And I don't think Jesse knew this, but a friend of mine on Twitter also sent me a link to a Screen Rant article from last year. So if you want to do a Google search, it's on Screen Rant. And it's uh, the headline is, what if the Avengers had been cast in the 1980s? And oh, okay. I will, I'm going to rattle these off real quick because they're fun. Uh, thirteen, number thirteen, Burt Reynolds as Iron Man. True, yes or no? <laughs> you, you know what? Yeah, in the early eighties, right. I could totally see it. Like, all right, now I'm going to ask you all these, and you say legitimate choice or amusing, but no, okay? Yeah. Patrick Swayze as Captain America. No. Yeah, love, love the late Patrick Swayze. I don't. Not see the right it. fit. Not the right fit. Uh, they said stick with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno as Bruce Banner. Okay. <laughs> uh, Billy D. Williams as Nick Fury. Uh, you can't go wrong with Billy D. Yeah, why not? Dolph Lundgren as Thor. There we go. Alan Rickman as Loki. God, that's Yes. Good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Carl Weathers as War Machine. Dig that. No yeah. problem. Michelle Pfeiffer as Black Widow. I could go with that. That'd be fine. Mel Gibson as Hawkeye. I still like the, I still like sure, I like Paxton better, but yeah. Or Michael Bean. Um, Philip Michael Thomas as Falcon. There you go. Not a very good actor, though. He wasn't, but uh, you surround him with the right ensemble, put him in the right suit. Michael Douglas as Hank Pym. Yeah, there you go. Tom Hanks as Ant-Man. See, there's something there. I'm really surprised Tom Hanks has avoided this entire thing so far. He's aged out of it now, but there it feels like at some point somebody would try to wrangle him into one of these and. Uh, yeah, and the final one, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Thanos. So that's a fun article at Screen Rant. <laughs> yeah. All right, oh, let's move go. on. Let's just move on completely. Drew, what's our next question? All right. Our next question is from Brian Jowdon, and the question is, what other sites do you use to find the release dates of movies? I use Wikipedia, but like for November of 1981, there are five movies listed there, and I know you're going to be talking about more than five movies. Uh, it's a good question, Brian, and the answer is I don't use websites exclusively. Um, I've been buying books. I've been buying newspapers. I'm uh, using archives here in L.A. that I go to to try and, and pin dates down. Uh, we certainly we start from websites. I think IMDb and Wikipedia are the easiest IMDb to use. IMDb is great. Wikipedia is great. I mean, we probably if we used a bibliography, it would probably be 12 or 14 sources. Yeah. There's AFM. My one problem with Wikipedia is they use I mean, IMDb a lot, so yeah. when they get things wrong, it gets magnified. Thank you. Uh, uh, there are a lot of holes in it, and it's also based on IMDb's data, but Box uh, Data, but Box Office Mojo has some handy charts. The numbers, um, 
and some secret some secret recipes that we cannot reveal unless somebody else steals our format and yeah i'll just say this that <laughs> it is it has been genuinely a learning process and i feel like it's only in about the last three or four months that i feel confident that as we move forward we're going to get 95% of it right, 98% of it right. We're going to we're going to have most of it in place. And there's a lot of it that is just lost to time. You got to remember there's no there was no official source back then. Even books that came out contemporary to these events don't agree necessarily on release dates and release dates were weirder because things were regional. So there's people that will yep. tell you that they saw something in 83 that somebody else saw at the beginning of 82 and they're not wrong. They just saw it when it came out in their market. And, and while we do hope to be a reliable resource, neither of us are claim will claim that our uh, our we're one hundred percent accurate. Uh, we we're going for as close as we possibly can. And I mean, if you had seen some of these, like some of these emails, like Drew, this movie Jaws of Satan, January of eighty one or April of eighty one, and he's like, I don't even think it came out in theaters at all. And it's like we're like we're wasting not wasting spending our time on a movie called Jaws of Satan, like. Yeah. like so you don't have to worry that we're you know, like glossing over stuff intentionally. Um, but again, if if and when we get a release date or or something wrong or miss a title, please let us know because we want to be as complete as possible. Especially when we see contradictions in the research, that's when it's like, okay, we're going to take what we think is the most authoritative source and use that. But I, I can point at two completely different citations for this release date. So. Oh, and you know what else are very valuable? A couple months ago, I had to cert. I did. Spent a couple hours searching old trades, uh, Variety and Hollywood Reporter for tracking down specific, like accurate release dates. Because if if a if a Variety uh, review from um, April of 1981 and it says April 16th, 1981, then you, ah, now I've I've really nailed it down. It's April of 1981. Uh, so you know, there's lots of lots of good sources out there. It's just you got to dig. Okay, that takes us to Derek Marr. What bad movies have you hit so far that you feel could be remade as good films? Uh, this is a favorite topic of mine, uh, you know, armchair uh, filmmakers and, and film analysts, film geeks. They all like to think that, you know, they could improve a film with just a couple of tweaks and touches, and but now it's better. It's not always the case. Uh, yeah, however... No. <laughs> Uh, I would like to, like, there are some horror films from the decade that I think have a really cool premise and don't really do enough with it, and we covered uh, one. Dude, Fade to Black, we started with that. Oh, yeah, no, Fade to Black, I I, I, I was talking about the Funhouse. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, but no, Fade to Black is, uh, would, would, would have been my, my ace in the hole, yeah, but the, the, the Funhouse is, like, such a cool concept, and it's such a colorful uh, just marketing, you could sell it so 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 easily, and the first half of that movie is so dull. Just just make it a little make it a little faster, you know. Give people a little bit more juice, a little make the characters a little funnier, a little more colorful, and and maybe some more you know body count, bigger body count, some more actual suspense tension. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the Funhouse has its moments, but it could no disrespect to Toby Hooper, it could definitely be improved upon. Yeah, and I feel like that was Toby at a weird point where he didn't have control of what he was doing. He was because it was his first studio movie, and and the jump from doing stuff like Eating Alive and Texas Chainsaw, where you're completely in control and you're out in the middle of nowhere doing your thing, and then you go to work for a studio, it just feels like it wasn't his bag on that film. Like, like he had a yeah. hard time making that jump. Well, yeah, another movie I'd love to remake only because I like the title is Hell Knight. 
it's just, a great title. Yeah, I like the title. It's a, the fraternity thing. And again, it's a, it's got a creepy setting and some good moments, but yeah, there's so much dead air in a lot of these horror movies from this wonderful decade. <clears throat> um, I also, uh, guilty, horrible pleasure, I, I would, I'd love to do a remake of Evil Speak. Sorry. Interesting. I'm... I am about to rewatch that, and I have not seen it since it came out. So I am curious what I'll think of it this time around. Because man, I barely remember it. Yeah, coming up in the next episode, it is wild. And as Drew mentioned, Fade to Black, which is a very cool horror thriller starring Dennis Christopher as a movie buff who uh, who falls into the as Drew and I like to call it the misfit strikes back subgenre that was probably made popular by Carrie. But yeah. If you dig through the genre, you'll find tons of these Misfit Strikes Back, like uh, like Willard and Massacre at Central High and Laser Blast. Lots of these movies where just uh, a weird person gets angry and gets revenge. Evil Speak is a lot like that, too. And um, and Fade now, to Black is a, 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 a film buff's dream. It's it's a film. It's a film nut. You know, it's a horror movie for film fans. That's that's the thing that I think is so interesting about it is today, if you did it, the way you could make reference to other horror films and the way you could really make that film a love letter to what it is that scares you or what characters stick with us in horror. I mean, there's a there's a great remake in there if you do it right. And it's it's one of those films where the poster promises you a movie that I felt like I didn't get when I actually saw the movie. And that's always yeah. a bummer, man. I, I hate when I see a, a poster and I'm like, well, that's not what I finally got. And I wish it was because that looks awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I was probably about 14 or 15 until it dawned on me, oh, it's much easier to create a cool poster than it is a really good movie. Ah, yeah. get it, you know. And uh, But that that's what I would want to remake, you know. I, I, I get why studios want to remake their big, big movies, because that's the titles we all know, Halloween and Friday the 13th and what have you. Uh, but for me, I'd rather remake things that I, I like but don't love. And, and think that they actually could be somehow improved upon, uh, you know, contemporizing them as opposed to just making money because it's a popular title. There's only one film on the list that I really uh, that we've covered so far that I really like that I still think is right for a remake, even though uh, I like the original. Um, Beatlemania. Not Beatlemania. Close, though. Scanners. Oh, I think mm. I think if you gave if you gave a smart filmmaker a little room to breathe on that, Scanners is one of those things that uh, yeah, there's really so few other things like it. You'd need somebody at least as smart as David Cronenberg, and what are the odds that you're going to find that? You know. Well, um, fine. All right, I'll do it. I, I, I yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> I hear the idea of Scanners remake, and I recoil. But then if you were to say. Uh, Scanners remake and uh, Darren Aronofsky's directing it. I'd be like, whoa. See, that's what I mean. If there's, <laughs> I think there's a movie in there that I they could just go back into the original ideas and play with it. I don't even know how how much you have to call it a remake. Um, most of the time with remakes, I think the further you get away from the original, the better you are. Uh, yeah, because you're you're you know you're forging some new ground. Right. You know, it's uh, like take, fade, take fade. as a jumping off point. Take this as a, a like a what what do you do with this seed and what would you make out of this? And right. I think, like I love the uh, the setting and the basic concept of the funhouse. But if I had you know if I was given free reign to remake the funhouse, I think it, in a best case scenario, people would say yeah, you recaptured a bit of what I like about the original and you've also forged your own ground. And that's, uh, I agree. I think that's what the best remakes do is, 
you know, take a concept and build on a concept. Uh, yeah. You know, nobody wants to see a copy of an earlier film. Sorry, uh, Gus Van Sant. Um, so this yeah. next, uh, these next two questions we're actually going to combine because both of these people asked something that's similar. Felipe Sobriero asked, uh, when you're done, will you do 90s all over? And Thomas Kennedy said, did you consider covering a different decade or was it always going to be the 80s? And if you do continue, will you move on to the 90s or go back to the 70s? And uh, <sighs> the first um, answer is this. That's like asking a woman what she's going to name her second kid while she's giving birth to the first kid. It's it's also like, and this is what I've tried to explain to people for the last like four years. It's like asking Daniel Craig at the press junket for Spectre. So when are you going to start the next Bond movie? And he says, I'm going to slash my wrists before that happens. Yeah, because, if, um, yeah, just yeah. give people a time to breathe. We're going to finish this thing. And that the exciting thing to me is when we're done and we have all of these episodes on a shelf and we have the everything from January to December of 89, um, I'm going to be really proud of that as a a finished thing. And then if we do anything else after that, it would be because we look at this finished thing. We say, what other thing fits that would be as interesting and as dense and as rich as this. And that's why we picked the eighties was because the more we talk, the more we realize that there's an opportunity here to do something that's between regular reviewing and just talking about nostalgia. We, we have this, this moment that we were there for that we can kind of cover this way. Right. Uh, um, if we all right, and if that moment happened yesterday, and we have all these episodes, and we're all finished, and then we said we're going to take a break, we could, in theory, do the 1990s. We yep. could more likely do the 1970s. More to me, much more interesting. Yeah, I think Drew would agree. Uh, we also could decide that we want to collaborate on something, a podcast dedicated to any other number of uh, topical. Like we, we've come up with lots of different ideas, uh, you know, but but the point is we want to finish this. <laughs> the, yeah, the, I, I like the idea. Of this is a finite thing. And throughout, my, uh, yeah, throughout our career, we've both had things that have ended abruptly, either through our own circumstances or even more often have just been yanked out from under us and yeah. that's you know and this is just it's it's great to have a project that belongs to three of us and we're having fun doing it people like it and you know we don't want to look too far ahead we're looking at 1982 right now if if when all is said and done uh, you know our audience is still hungry for something else then very likely we will do something else but that's years down the road and i uh, i yeah. just did the list uh, my viewing list for everything that i'll need to see for 1982 and 1983 and just looking at that which is my next year of movie watching um i need a nap cuz there's a lot of stuff on that list and i'm excited about it but yeah, yeah that's a that's, the, these mean, are giant projects that we bite off and you know, there's I weekends other- where I'll watch three, four movies in a row for the show, and then I'll go a week without watching anything, yeah. and then I'll watch ten in five days. You know, there it just you go. I, it's hard to explain something that is both really fun and actual work. Usually, it's one or the other. And, What's really you know, weird right now is I'm getting a stutter where I am having the 1980 film year unfold for me chronologically, and I'm having the regular film year unfold for me chronologically, and I'm writing about both of them for different things. Yeah, we could go back in time if you do that. 
it's a really interesting feeling because I do feel like I am totally immersed in 80s movies at this point. Like they are always on. It's always around. It's one of those things. The kids are seeing stuff they never would have seen otherwise. And uh, it it's kind of interesting to be out of sync a little bit with pop culture right now because I'm immersed in this other thing. And I like that feeling. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun to, you know, a lot of stuff that. The, the most fun is, um, well, the most fun is discovering things I hadn't seen at all, um, you know, like like Reds or um, uh, Cutter's Way, uh, Prince of the City. I had seen bits nice. and pieces, you know, but stuff like that. But but secondarily, the, the next best is stuff that you thought you had nailed down. Like if you had said to me, Scott, what do you think of Pennies from Heaven yesterday or, you know, two weeks ago, I would have said – uh, technically impressive. I know it's kind of downbeat. I haven't seen it in many years. Didn't really think much of it. And now I could go for an hour on that movie, you know? Yep. So, you know, being, uh, rediscovering is, is the best part because you know, a little bit, you're not coming in blind. So you already have a foothold on most of these, a lot of these movies. So I already have a, a foothold for pennies from heaven. And now I can climb up the rest of the way. I'm not just approaching these films completely cold. And that, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, we need to pause for one quick second. Sure. I am pulling up the uh, films that won Best Picture for the 80s. Uh, one second, one second, one second, one second, one second. Okay. We are good to go. You want to read the next one? Uh, yeah, hold on. I'm doing the same thing. Well, I'm going to rattle them off. Okay. Um. All right, so uh, this next question is from Andrew Carden, and it's an Oscar question. What is your favorite Oscar-winning performance from the decade and your favorite Best Picture winner? All right, uh, let's on on go. One, two, three, go. We both name our os- the, the person, okay? Uh, the, the person? Yep, the Oscar win the actor or actress who won the Oscar that makes you happiest. Okay. All right. All right, one, I think I've got it. On go. One, two, three, Kevin Robert Klein. De Niro. Oh, Ooh, okay. All right. Now, what was your De Niro for what? Bull. For Raging Bull. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mine was Kevin Klein for A Fish Called Wanda. Which is a phenomenal performance. And yeah, I can see why that would be one that would make you happy because that's so unlikely. Yeah. I mean, just the, the the time that it hit, I loved Fish Called Wanda. My whole family saw it like real early. We, you know, my uh, I drug my mom, dad and sister to see it. They didn't want to. My mom was cool with it. I don't think my dad and sister had any interest. Uh, my mom trusted me. If I told her that it was a comedy and she'd probably like it, she believed me most of the time yeah. until we until we went to see Bachelor Party. But that's a story for another episode. Um, <laughs> oh, dude. Now, see, oh. if 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 it was just nominees, I would say that um, my favorite so, Academy Award nominated performance from the decade is Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. Uh, favorite nominee Sigourney Weaver for Aliens. Uh, great choice. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Great choice. I, I will always be loyal to my genre. I, I just have never been yeah. a drama guy. All right, and then the the next question was uh, what uh, best picture favorite best picture winner? And I'll run these off real quick. Best picture winner eighty was Ordinary People. Eighty one Chariots of Fire. Eighty two Gandhi. Eighty three Terms of Endearment. Eighty four Amadeus. Eighty five Out of Africa. Eighty six Platoon. 87, Last Emperor, 88, Rain Man, 89, Driving Miss Daisy. Of those films, my favorite is Amadeus. I, I'm torn. 
I think I'm going to give the edge to Terms of Endearment, but Amadeus yeah. would be my second. I yeah, those Gandhi, two are both and, great. Gandhi's a film that I picked after many many years of just blithely ignoring it because I didn't, not because I didn't think it'd be good, just because I didn't think it would connect with me. I was probably selling myself short. Gandhi's a wonderful movie. God, I wish I had seen that earlier. But Amadeus was one of those. Amadeus and Dangerous Liaisons were the films that taught me, hey, these old period pieces are not always stuffy and dull. You thought they were, but they're not. When they're done right, they can be funny and scary and sad and and sexy and terrible and tragic. Uh, And they don't always have to be, at least to my young eyes, kind of dull. Yeah. And Amadeus just blew me away. Loved it. Loved it. And I remember I remember Terms of Endearment being one of the moments that Nicholson started to connect for me at 13, where I really went, this guy is just unreal. Just watching yeah. what he does in this movie. And um and beyond that, Deborah Winger in that performance in that role is just unbelievable. That's I think, yeah, my vaguest memory of Terms of Endearment, my earliest was it was one of those movies that it was probably on HBO or something, and I thought, oh, this is a grown-up movie. I won't like it. And within 20 minutes, I was like, you were wrong. Yep. Selling yourself short again. Yep. Yep. But, you know, and, and great, just a great Brooks screenplay. He is something funny, else. It's sad. If you've not seen Terms of Endearment and you just think it's just a you know prototypical tearjerker, uh, it's not. It has some of those moments, but it also has weird, funny, sad, realistic, touching moments. Uh, I, I love the film. I think just Amadeus just kind of, I think the music pushes it over the top um all right so uh the next three are from the same guy and i just put them all in in a row here uh peter mars submitted these questions first are there any releases that you intend to omit from the podcast for moral or ethical reasons one example i could think of which will take you a while to get to would be the january 89 release of victor salva's clown house some might also argue the work of roman polanski should be skipped as well what do you guys think uh with respect i think that's looney tunes yeah, I'm with you. Uh, not a uh, chance. It's a, good, it's a good question, Peter. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to answer it. So I'm not no no offense to you, but, but anybody who would say that you know that's not what a film critic would do. That's not what a film lover would do. Uh, yeah. I respect people who have no interest in Victor Salva. I respect people who avoid Roman Polanski's films. But I you know I actually studied a little bit of film criticism. I actually studied some journalism, and you know it's not your job to make a, a moral judgment. Um, before you've seen something. And it's funny that we're talking about this because uh, there's that whole, there's a big controversy now going on about this HBO show, Confederacy. Yeah. And I, as a film advocate, as an as a patron of the arts, on one hand, I'm like, writers and directors should be able to create whatever they want, whatever they want. And then I read a couple of articles from black writers and I'm like, you know what? These people all make some damn good points. Maybe this is not a good idea. And then I feel like I'm betraying my my artist side, my film lover side by even by even considering that. You know, I don't so, think there's any I don't think there's any problem with the pushback. That's going to happen, and it's going to happen either now or when they go on the air. They're still going to get hammered. And I've read some of the same articles you have, and I've I one of the things that I really like about Twitter is that my Twitter feed is made up of a lot of people who don't look like me and aren't me. And the reason I do that is because I really need to get better at listening to why people are upset about things instead of just taking a position that I'm right. I watched Judd Apatow the last couple of days kind of wrestle with this in public. And he's been getting we all do it. We all sometimes we just default to our own narrow viewpoint. And it could you could be an ignorant person. You could be a very open minded person. But sometimes we just default to our own narrow viewpoint and we get defensive and we have to get past that. We have, and I, I do think that there's, look, I think you are 
there's a huge difference here in terms of um, the, the reaction I might have or the reaction somebody's having who says that they're never going to tune in and that it disappoints them and that they're upset about the show. I don't think there's any problem with somebody saying that doesn't look like something that I want in my head or in my life, and I'm just not going to pay any attention to it. I may even go out of my way to avoid it. That's fine. Um, I even think if you are agitated about something that's being made, make your voice heard while it's in pre-production like this. It's fine. I don't think HBO should be afraid of it. I don't think Benioff and Weiss should be afraid of it. Um, and I certainly think they're going to do whatever they're going to do. But what I think is is vital right now is... And what is finally happening in a way that it hasn't really for us as film fans in the past is I think everybody's stages have gotten a little more equal and we're actually hearing people as they're saying why this upsets them or what it means to them. Right. And right. So that's bring, really the best thing you can do is listen. Yeah. To bring it back to the question, we, we strayed a little bit, but uh, I will not to, 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 to put a cap on what Drew said. I think he'll agree. If and when Victor Salva makes another Jeepers Creepers, I won't watch it. And it's it's just because his crimes is, are what I'll be thinking about during the entire film. And I don't want to think about that for 90 minutes. That's not my fault. I, I, you know, I don't want to watch his films. I've already seen one and two Jeepers Creepers one and two. I'm not going to pretend they don't exist. I'm not going to delete them from my brain. Uh, I've not seen Clown House, and yes, I suppose I will watch it for the show. I'm trying to be a professional here. Uh, well, and you know, Clown House is an unusual circumstance because it is the movie where it happened. It's oh, exactly, where yeah. it's where the event occurred, and it was with a cast member from the film. So it's a really unpleasant thing. But it's here's here's a good example that uh, it's not a thing where it's about uh, sexual offense. It's a different kind of problem with a film. I can't watch The Crow. I've never seen the whole fi film all the way through. And it's because we got to know Brandon Lee a little bit when we first moved to town. And when he was killed, it was really traumatic to anybody who had met him. The idea that this guy was snuffed out so young. And I went to a test screening. They didn't even tell us what it was. It was just a test screening for a movie. They didn't identify it. And as soon as I realized it was The Crow, I started to get nervous. I like got flop sweat, and I was really upset. And then the first time somebody breaks in and starts firing a gun at Brandon, Brandon Lee, I freaked out. Like, I couldn't watch it. Um, yeah. So that's just me. I know I, for whatever reason, I'll never make it through that film. And it doesn't mean I hate the film or I think it's a bad film or no one should have ever seen it. But I can't watch, and I, I can't imagine ever getting to a place where I'd be right. comfortable watching them shoot him. Right, and on and and you could see how if this happened, God forbid, happened yesterday, you could see the debate of, hey, is it really even worth releasing this film? Wouldn't you know? Just like, can't you just write it off as a loss and put the footage away? Because it, it, in a way, it contain. We're getting way off tangent here. Okay, but yeah, <laughs> well, look, I, uh, I think, ultimately, I think yes, what we're both trying to say is when we come to controversial issues, we're going to be dealing with Victor Salva, Roman Polanski, people, Mel Gibson, who's not. Yeah. You know, it was a different kind of controversial. All we ask is that you consider other people's perspectives. I don't personally, as a Jewish guy, I don't have a problem with Mel Gibson. Some Jewish people do. We ask that you consider both both perspectives. That's all, right? Yep. There. Uh, I I know that when we get to Last Temptation of Christ, that's going to be a conversation. There's plenty mm -hmm. of stuff throughout this decade that was controversial and will continue to be so now as we discuss it again. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, this guy's next, next question. Go oh, for sorry. it. Sorry. Yeah. No. Uh, pornography. Mm. The early 80s was considered to be the tail end of the golden age of pornography. 
could you talk a little about your decision to omit adult film releases from the podcast? If Is it simply the fact that you didn't want to have a show consisting of two middle-aged men discussing the merits and flaws of 30-year-old smut? Ah, well, Drew, what do you think? Um, uh, the age of theatrical pornography was over by 1980. Um, yeah. If well, this was a movie he, about this, if this was about the seventies, I would say anything that got a mainstream commercial release, and that included Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door, and there were a number. Debbie Does Dallas. There were movies that played mainstream multiplex theaters that were pornography, but by the early eighties, home video was already starting to get its foothold, and those theaters just weren't around as much. Right, and but if that it, wasn't the case, would we be covering porno films? If I considered it a mainstream release, we'd have to have the conversation. But I don't yeah. think that's the no, case I'm at all. I'm not saying I'd necessarily have a problem with a handful yeah. of them in being included. Uh, but yeah, well, a we're here to you know discuss feature films, and you know, yep. not taking anything away from adult films and pornography, they certainly have their place in the world, and we don't look down on them. But we're talking about Hollywood feature films and independent films. Uh, and, and we could tie this back to another question. If and when 80s all over draws to a close, maybe we'll go back and do 70s porn all over. Good Lord. Good, I don't I'm know not, if I'm strong no enough for that. Hey, dude, I am not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, it's it, that's the main thing is we're talking about theatrical releases. And I think the the shortest version of that answer is they just weren't by that point. Right. Plus, what perspective would we have on porno films from our childhood? I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I, I, if we did, that would be not good. Right. I don't have any anecdotes about seeing porno until I was 17, 16. I, <laughs> and I don't feel like sharing those stories anyway. So, yeah, there. that's. That's not this kind of podcast. So, but it's a fair question. You know, pornography is film. It is, and it's, it is. it's a different kind of film. But it not to take anything away from it. Uh, but I bet you there are some pretty good podcasts out there that cover porn. Look it up. And then Peter Mars's last question. Yeah, I mean, these first two are so specific, and the last one's this sort of existential, broad question: What makes an '80s movie? And I'm going to uh, assume that you'd mean something beyond chronology. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, well, there's obviously, not to be pedantic, but there's tons of answers to this question. Uh, I think what, what what the person's talking about, what, what, what's this gentleman's name? I'm sorry. This is Peter uh, Mars. P Peter. Peter Mars. Thank you, Peter, and, for the question. And actually, real quick, Brendan Taylor, the next guy, basically asked the same question. He said, what are the most 80s movies, the yeah. ones that sum the decade up? And I wrote down, just off the top of my head, and I'm probably second guess it, but I wrote down Back to the Future. That was, to me, the prototypical 80s movie in every way. No? Yes? You think? Yeah. I think that's fair. I think I think anything that had the Amblin logo on it kind of embodies the 80s. Even batteries think, not included? Yeah, I think so. It's, you know, it's yeah. the, it, it, that's just cocoon with Spielberg and Yeah, uh Ron Howard, oh, I mean, uh Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, John Landis, uh Joe Dante. There's an uh, aesthetic yeah. that definitely kicked in. Uh, Simpson Bruckheimer, I think, helped define yeah, the oh, 80s. Definitely, definitely. I think Cannon Joel films. Silver helped define the Joel 80s. Silver, the Cannons, uh, uh, so many. Uh, but yeah, if we're talking about like the most iconic, the most John Hughes. Oh, I John don't know Hughes. how you can talk we about could, the decade. Oh no, yeah, we, I mean, we he couldn't defined, sit here and do the yeah. the, the all stars of the 80s. It would take us another hour. Uh, but but Back to the Future to me typifies the it's it's a comedy. It's smart. It's uh, it's got a lot of action. You could see it with your parents, but it's still got a little bit of edge. Uh, it's it's all wrapped up in a tight, fun bow. It's a movie you could talk about at Denny's afterwards. You know, um, it's not part. 
it wasn't necessarily part, it wasn't like Empire Strikes Back or Star Trek Two or something that was already part of an established franchise. So, you know, a 15-year-old and his mom and his dad could appreciate it all at the same time. Um, I don't think it's my favorite 80s movie, but it's definitely up there. I think Back to the Future would be my answer. Yeah, I think Back to the Future is a great answer. Uh, I might go with I might go with Beverly Hills Cop, Good. which I, I think it's a movie star movie with the 80s sort of movie Ghost, star at the center Ghost, of it. Yeah, Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. Cop, Beverly yeah. Hills Cop, Ghost Gremlins. Uh, it, you know, it, for better or for worse, and obviously Drew and I believe it's more better than anything, Spielberg cast a huge shadow. It wasn't just that people said, oh, he's he's successful. Let's copy what he does. It was... Oh, he's making big, big concept comedies and action and adventure movies for families. Not sim- not 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 li- animated features for little kids. Not you know, rate, uh, not not Cobra starring Stallone. He was making stuff for virtually everyone. Yeah, and it was kind of like a, a throwback to the adventure era. You know, you go to the movies during any given month in the 1980s, and you were going to see. You know, something like The Last Starfighter, where it was just, you know, uh, seven, different the, flavor, seven different it, flavors of fun. <laughs> it was the era of the high concept. And I think this is yeah. really where the high concept thing became such a cornerstone in terms of Hollywood's appetite. Um, you know, that they're swinging for that big, giant, mainstream cross target hit that everybody's going to go see. And right. I right. think before that films, it was OK that films weren't for everybody before that. Well, and then it the became 70s, this idea like they have to be for everybody. The 70s. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and some people would say to its detriment, but the 70s were so if you were to look at the 70s in American film, it was very. Uh, independent, steely, uh, 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 tough in a way, you know, it was, and, and eighties became a lot for lack of a better word, softer, but not, but also in a way, a lot more fun. I would not say that the eighties as a, as a decade is better than the seventies. That's crazy. The seventies is a better decade. It is. Yeah. Uh, uh, Oh God, I'm going to get a lot of grief for that, but it's true. The seventies was a lot more influential, a, (laughs) a lot more, well, it's my it's my flavor. I mean, the, if you're yeah. talking about the decades that are, you know what it is, pound seven, for pound, it's yeah. It seems like the '70s is when the filmmakers we love earned their bones, and then the '80s is when they were like enjoying their success. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, our next question comes from Jesper Wiking, and he says, "How did the podcast come about? Under what circumstances did you become friends?" Uh, well, um, Scott and I were in prison together yep. and, uh, we had a cell, uh, that we shared with, uh, three other people, uh, and there was only one bed. So, uh, Scott and I got quite close in prison and uh, we talked about eighties films to keep ourselves sane. We could answer, I guess we'd answer the <laughs> second part first is that logically you and I sh- probably shouldn't even be friends logically because Drew worked for a site that was run by somebody who I am not a fan of. Yes. And uh, by all accounts, Ain't It Cool at the time was kind of Ain't It Cool versus the rest of the film. I can, I can vouch that that's how it felt. Yeah. It, it, it's true. <laughs> it was something that this person, not true, but this person fostered. Yeah. And then I started to realize, hey, you know what? This one person might deserve your disdain and your disrespect, but... There are some really good people who write at this site, and I, I now consider Drew 
and Cargill and Eric Vespi, three of my very best friends, and they all came out of that site. So one of the one of the things that really helped uh, was film festivals. Once I moved to Hitfix and I started doing the festival circuit, that's where you and I got to see yeah. each other more often. And yeah. it's it's very different than just running into people online. And I have a very large circle of friends now that are my festival buddies who live all over the country. And you know, I got to the B where every year the films were part of it. But clearly checking in on your friends four or five times a year was the other half of the festival experience that became very important. Yeah, when I when I started uh, covering festivals, then it was uh, people that I talked to online and read all their stuff. Then it was, oh, now I'm putting faces to James Rocky, to Drew McWeeny, to Jen Yamato, to uh, uh, Kim Voiner, to, you know, like really people that I already liked and liked their work. And now I'm, you know, either smoking a bowl or uh, eating dinner with them. And, uh, and Drew and I have obviously very similar sensibilities. We're very close in age. Uh, we both have similar, um, habits <clears throat> and, uh, <laughs> we, you know, and, and a lot of mutual friends. And so, uh, and then the podcast came about because I was n- nagging him to do a podcast for about a year. And I know that when, when you're trying to get Drew to do something, you have to give him a good idea. So if I were to say, how about a horror podcast? Eh, that's not a bad idea. We'll talk about it. Uh, how about a podcast about <laughs> sit- sitcoms we're used to like? Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Let's see. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And then I said, you know, we probably went through three years. And he would throw ideas at me, too. And then I said, how about we cover a, 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 every, you know, this format? And he went, yeah, yeah, that's not bad. I like it. And I thought, oh, it's just another one. He just kind of... And then two days later, he called me back. And he said, I got it. That, that is a great idea. It, I let it sink in. I let it percolate. I thought about the kind of work and the format and the structure. And let's do it. I love it. And I was like, done. That was it. It was like, you know, that was it. It was, uh, you know, it's like pitching a story. You throw six or seven and somebody likes the eighth one. And this is this was by far the best of the, it was the most original. Of well, the, it just... Uh, and the, the thing is, as soon as you as soon as you start to really think about the shape of it, it makes perfect sense for episodes, for years, for seasons, everything. And you're going to get to talk about every single kind of film there is. That's the most exciting part. Plus, is it doesn't be, limit you. It's it's I mean, not to not to, you know, uh, sound like we're doing anything essential or important here, but it's almost like uh, like when an archaeologist just realizes, oh, this is my niche. Or, or, or a teacher says, oh, this is my path. And it was like, well, I love, I love doing the podcast. I love talking about movies. I love social media. I, I know the 80s up, down, left, and right. I mean, I, even before I started researching for the show, it was, you say, Scott, what do you know in cinema? I would say horror films, 80s, and then beyond that, little pockets or beyond that. But that's really my wheelhouse. So I thought, you know, everybody... Everybody should do a podcast about something that they love because you'll get a lot out of it. I don't care if it's baking or needlepoint or movies or building dollhouses. If you enjoy it and, you know, other people will hopefully respond. Well, it also it satisfies something that's been an itch of mine to talk about or write about or deal with in some major way, which is this push towards nostalgia where we've gotten gotten to the point now where we kind of wallow in it. And, you know, I I'll admit I watched the Ready Player One trailer with Toshi and Alan here at the house a couple of times and was blown away by the size of what Spielberg's trying. Um, And if they go with what the end of the book did in Ready Player One, it's almost a refutation of nostalgia as a good thing. Like it gets to a place where it says, and you can't live like this. And And I think 
to some sorry, extent, sorry. that's what excited me when you said this was the idea that we could go back in and take the accepted wisdom and challenge it at every turn and hopefully uncover things that have not been discussed since they came out. Right. And I really, to me, that that felt valuable in a way that just talking about something I've talked about a hundred times didn't. Right. And I, I don't want to make it sound like it was my idea and I did it. It was, I had the basic concept and drew put wheels and a handlebar and a seat on it. So it was, it wasn't my idea. And he said, okay, it was, I had the nugget and then he built on it like any collaboration. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I'm the biggest compliment we've gotten so far is that like people thought that we would be just typical. This is great. That is great. We love everything. Gremlins, Goonies, Ghostbusters. Oh my God. It's all great. Uh, and whereas we're here actually discussing the issue and the topic of nostalgia, um, whereas, you know, I, I think that if it was just us saying this, everything's great, everything was awesome, that would get really boring. And then when we get to like a movie like The Goonies, which I've slowly grown out of love with over the years, although I don't hate it, I certainly don't like it as much as I did when I was young, I think that that says something to film watchers, you know, it, it tells people, you grow, you evolve, you you know, art stays the same, you, you know, but you, it, you change. And uh, it's okay to change your mind and discover new things. I'm very excited to see how we how stuff shakes out. There's there's several things that I have not watched since they came out that I am really really curious to have that next encounter with. Um, this last guy, Jeff Block, asked uh, the question. This is the kind of nonsense question that keeps me up at night. How will you guys correct errors made in your final episode? And the answer is we won't. We're just going to make a ton of errors and then we're going off the oh, air yeah. and no one can hold us responsible. Well, I have a, I have a, a, a sincere answer, but my joke answer would be like the December 1989 episode. We're going to just say, oh, and then John Landis's Avengers movie came out in December 89. <laughs> See you later. Yes. Uh, but no, the the, uh, the the factual answer is even when we're done, we'll still have the December wrap up episode to cover. So yeah. we could still get our boners into the uh, final wrap up episode. And then I, I could be wrong. <laughs> God, I love I, that phrasing. I could be wrong, but maybe even after the December bonus episode, maybe i don't want to say bonus recap episode uh we might even do like a mega mega recap of the whole show something maybe. yeah maybe we'll get edgar wright and judd apatow to sit in with us you don't we'll know th we'll throw a party and we'll have punch and pie yeah uh so those were that was our first mailbag uh lots of podcasts use the term mailbag so i, I wanted to come up with something else but who cares? You can't copyright the word mailbag podcast. I don't, I don't know, man. We're talking about mailbags and boners, and the show's getting weird. So let's just wrap this up. Yep. And uh, guys, as always, please stop by 80sallover.com where we have the 80s All Over store. You can find all the movies that we've talked about so far there, and we'll continue to update as that as we go. Please also visit us at patreon.com, 80s All Over. Uh, we depend on your support. It has made a huge difference, and we'll continue to do so. Um, thank you as always for listening guys we have great bonus material coming we've got new formats that we're talking about and plenty more guests ahead so thank you 